This is The Light Inside. I'm Jeffrey Biesecker. Self-criticism. When it comes to healthy and productive feedback, we often become our own worst enemy. And as we lean into our own blind spots, we can all tend to hinder our ability to expand both our awareness of self and the frameworks that we often utilize when viewing the universe we inhabit. Perhaps there is no greater limitation to this perceptive skill than the filters of lower ego activation. Yet rather than villainizing our ego, what happens as we evolve into higher phases of ego development and we learn to simply see ourselves in the world with new eyes? Today, we join conscious communication coach, Jim Fuller, to explore how we can begin breaking the adverse cycles of this often destructive pattern when we return to the light inside. When it comes to mobile service providers, with their high-rate plans, extra fees, and hidden cost or expenses, many of the big-name networks leave a bad taste in your mouth. Mint Mobile is a new flavor of mobile network service, sharing all the same reliable features of the big-name brands, yet at a fraction of the cost. I recently made the change to Mint Mobile, and I can't believe the monthly savings allowing me to put more money in my pocket for the things which truly light me up inside. Making the switch to Mint Mobile is easy. Hosted on the T-Mobile 5G network, Mint gives you premium wireless service on the nation's largest 5G network. With bulk savings on flexible plan options, Mint offers three, six, and 12-month plans, and the more months you buy, the more you save. Plus, you can also keep your current phone or upgrade to a new one, keep your current number or change to a new one as well, and all of your contacts, apps, and photos will seamlessly and effortlessly follow you to your new low-cost Mint provider. Did I mention the best part? You keep more money in your pocket. And with Mint's referral plan, you can rescue more friends from big wireless bills while earning up to $90 for each referral. Visit our Mint Mobile affiliate link at thelightinside.us forward slash sponsors for additional mobile savings or activate your plan in minutes with the Mint Mobile app. As it often resembles self-hate, self-loathing is a feeling constantly pushing the idea that we aren't good enough. As we wrestle with our emotions, circling back around in our thoughts and swarming in our feelings, we often become stuck in rumination. Coping with these unruly emotions is enough to drive us mad. And at times, a form of self-hatred develops. Several factors triggering, such as post-trauma, perfectionism, false expectations, social comparisons, and even learned behaviors. Many people with extreme self-hatred have been through traumatic and emotionally challenging experiences in their past. These experiences often include sexual, physical, or emotional abuse and neglect. In our childhood, as trauma is experienced, the world can often begin to feel unsafe. The people around us beginning to be perceived as a threat or dangerous. In our effort to make sense of this world, Narratives are developed which then leave us feeling as if we are not worth loving and have no value. These hateful statements may have been said directly to us by a parent or a loved one. 
and they soon become an all-too-familiar part of our inner critic. As we replay these stories, these negative feedback loops over and over in our minds, they begin to read like the story of a villain appearing in a tragic book, or as we see them as the monster under our beds. How then do we break the holds of these often challenging patterns? To break free of the negative emotional and mental feedback loops leading to the end of these destructive patterns of belief. Our guest conscious communication coach, Jim Fuller, teaches us how to reframe our inner self-talk so we can eliminate our negative feedback loops and repetitive thought cycles. Jim, when it comes to repetitive thought cycles and emotional rumination, each of us can become susceptible to recurring cycles of stress and anxiety. We often look at this in a similar manner as the often used thought-terminating cliche of the chicken and the egg. Jim, in this regard, as one asks, what comes first? How might our subjectively programmed beliefs and self-judgments come into play? when it comes to repetitive thought cycles and feedback loops. Wow, man. Talk about jumping straight in. (laughs) We're going to go for it today. That is a big, (laughs) awesome question, dude. I love that. You know, and, and I'm not sure that there's necessarily a right or wrong per se. There's an experience for each of us, right? And for a lot of us, certainly for me until there came, you know, the curiosity to ask questions like the one that you've just asked and seek to understand. Prior to that, there was a lot of walking around completely unconscious to any of this, you know, and so we have this misunderstanding that our version of reality is actually reality. We think that our our experience, our perception of the information available to us around us in our environment and the way that we make sense of that and project that as a very seemingly real audio-visual illusion in our mind, we think that that's actually reality. And then when we start to wake up and realize, oh, wow, hang on, my version of reality is flavored by my beliefs and my biases and my (laughs) repetitive cycles of thought? No way, dude. It's fascinating once you start to become aware of that, right? Because then it's an endless adventure of the mind to think, wow, So all through my life, I've been experiencing that particular thing in that particular way because of my beliefs around that. Where did that come from? You know, and I think it all evolves simultaneously and and in synchronicity with itself, right? I don't know. What do you think, dude? I think often our own introspections or simply that self-examination we do, you know, turning your thoughts inside, we're simply looking for an answer and a why a lot of times. Mm. Mm can become what's known as introspection illusion, where Mm -hmm. you are filtering that through kind of, you know, for a more cliched, again, view of rose-colored glasses or simply just a filter, whatever color that filter might be. Yeah. Being decided by all of your pattern beliefs, all of your experience to your environment, your upbringing, the influence of external factor of the people you experience throughout life, namely predominantly the people before the age of seven in your home environment, Uh in your your sometimes church environments, spiritual environments, grandparent figures. Yeah, absolutely. And so is it, is it even possible to observe anything 
completely objectively. Is that possible, including self, when you introspect? <laughs> is it possible to observe yourself objectively? Arguably not, right? Because the minute that you conceive anything, the minute you label anything, the minute you call it a chair, let alone call it an abusive uncle <laughs> or whatever it is that you're labeling any experience that you have, the minute you add language to it, you're adding flavor to it and your connotation of that word and that, and which is your experience growing up, you know, and your experience is different to mine. There's a lot of similarities between us. You know, we, we bleed the same color blood. We, we feel the same kind of pain when a, a loved one dies. You know, we have a lot in common, but we also have our own beautifully unique and complex um, variations on on this thing we call life, right? And I can only see it through my eyes. You know, Jeffrey, I find it fascinating that humans are trying to understand reality, right? So we have, you know, scientists in all these different fields from quantum physics through to astrophysics and, you know, science and neuroscience. And, and we're on this quest to try and understand the universe like we're separate from it or even that we're a part of it. And I think that philosophically that's impossible to understand it objectively because we can only understand it through our perception of it, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, anyway. <laughs> From that perspective alone, myself, I've moved into an adopted, you know, say adopted and might be temporarily this belief that I'm only certain of anything to the degree I'm uncertain of it. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And in that, we simply open that door to question. We often are entrained or conditioned to believe that questioning has some innate takeaway value from it. Yeah. You know, positive, negative, there again, starts to become subjective where we yeah. move out of that objectivity. Where that simple questioning, though, becomes stigmatized. Why uh -huh. are you questioning us? We think about it when we're kids. How yeah. often does a parent say, don't ask me that question? <laughs> yeah. Why don't, don't question know me? You know, and we, we <laughs> see that as a pattern mirrored projected trauma response. Yeah. Don't question me. Simply do as I say. Yeah. What states might that create in a child then? I'm going to leave that open for you to interact with from your perspective. Yeah. 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 And look, various different states. I think that some some kids that drives their curiosity even further. Yeah. Some kids, some kids, and this is this this will be to do with the combination of nurture and nature, you know, in terms of our wiring and and the plasticity of that or or not. But some kids then might just be subjugated and say, okay, uh, and just follow the sheep and don't ask questions. Um, for, for for me, it certainly drove curiosity. But you know what I've found through through a, a just. I got lucky, well, lucky or unlucky, I don't know. I just so happened to be curious. And so what that's done for me is that, um, you know, I've, I've wanted to find out stuff. And the more we seek to get answers, the more doors there are unopened that we go, oh, wow, we really know less than we thought. And every time, <laughs> we, are, every time we find the key to another door and we unlock it, we go, yes, we understand the, the subparticles of an atom. And then we go, oh, no, how does that work? Right? Yeah. It's just yeah. more that we don't know. And I love that. <clears throat> I love that we don't understand what's going on because to me that means that there is a vast scope of possibility possibility that, that we, we can't prove or disprove stuff. And, you know, it's interesting too, if something experientially is for me, if it works for me, I don't actually need to know how or why for me to utilize that. You know, I use the analogy of, um, 
You know, I don't understand the technology behind airdropping something. I can airdrop a video from my iPhone to your iPad <laughs> in two seconds. I've got no idea how that works, right? But that doesn't stop me from utilizing the technology. That doesn't stop me from airdropping something just because I don't know how it works. So um, it, it's fine for scientists to be out there seeking to know exactly the mechanics of the universe. That's fine. It, you know, knock yourself out. But in the meantime, the, for example, the telepathy that works between me and my partner, my other half, we use it all the time, yeah. easily and beautifully. Now, I don't exactly know, <laughs> I don't exactly know how it works, but that doesn't stop us yes. from using it, right? Yeah, I, I can relate to that with my own partner. And there are times where we instinctively will ask some simple question, even along the lines as, are you hungry for this for dinner? I don't know how many times because I'm not literally tracking it, but I know it happens yeah. with frequency that we yeah. might stumble into that. Some of that might be conditioned results there again. Some of it is that telepathy of having that alignment, that energetic alignment from my perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. Look, I, I've seen things. I've witnessed things in my life that I cannot explain, that science can't explain. Yeah. And I was right there, you know, it, it was, there was no trickery. It was real. <laughs> I, and I don't know how it occurs scientifically, but I know it, it did, the, the experiences that I've witnessed. And so, um, yeah, man, I'm open, I'm open to a world of possibility. That, that, and I find that wonderful. Life to me is miraculous. You know, a, a miracle is a miracle only because we don't understand how it works. But I'm using that word with inverted commas, miraculous, but it's certainly beautiful. <laughs> I mean, it's certainly, have you ever thought about this, Jeffrey? Why as a, as an animal, as a species, as a creature, why do we have the um, desire or need or the ability to be driving along in our car and see a beautiful rainbow and pull over and get out of the car and look at the rainbow and stand there in wonder and go, wow, that's beautiful. Why do we do that? We don't need to see the beauty in a rainbow. Yeah. Other animals don't stop. You don't see, you know, another animal stop and look up and go, oh, rainbows are so beautiful, man. <laughs> but we do. <laughs> How frequently yeah. might we simply just discount that opportunity and pass it by? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure some people do. How many times do we create the why not mm, rather mm. than the why can't we? <laughs> and even yeah. then, that's a loaded question because it says cannot. That's something to ponder. Why do we utilize that as a method of conveyance or communication? Why can't we automatically calls into a negative question? I yeah. just yeah. kind of brought that into my awareness now that, wow, we're already starting to st that process somewhat subconsciously. Yeah. To yeah. Say we're not going to do it. Yeah. Isn't it interesting, man? It's like, well, you know, we understand how powerful language is, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and we also understand that when we, as you're saying, with the negative um, wording in a particular question and where that leads us neurologically and then experientially. So it's, and I find it fascinating because we, we understand that the brain doesn't process the don't bit. So, for example, if we say, whatever you do, Jeffrey, don't think of a pink elephant. <laughs> you do. <laughs> Nine times. A large portion of the time there again, I almost went to my default and said nine times out of 10. Why do we default to nine times out of 10 if that's our default? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's just neurological wiring, that man. It's path of least resistance. 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So it's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting that we say that we say we, you know, we don't get the don't bit, but I don't know about in your culture over there in the States, man, but here in Australia, the, the language patterns are if, if, so, if you do something for someone and they say, Oh, thank you so much. Do you know what we say here? No problems, man. No worries, man. We're focused on problems. We're focused on worries. Yeah. Right. Rather than saying easy peasy or all yeah. good, <laughs> you know, or, or, or we say when someone says, Hey man, how you doing in here in Australia? We go, yeah, not bad. Not bad. Well, I guess yeah. that's a bit better than bad, but you're still focused Familiar. on bad, yeah. right? That's where the neurology is always focused on this negative bad stuff. And I became curious about that, you know, about 10 years ago. And I thought, okay, that's cool. So when someone says, how are you? And I go, yeah, I'm great, man. But I still, then I, then I was struggling going, but what about authenticity? Because what if I am having a challenging day? What if I'm struggling today? And I don't want to say, yeah, I'm great when I'm not, right? I want to be authentic. Yeah. So I started saying, when someone says, how are you today? And if I wanted to be authentic and it was a struggle of a day, I would say, yeah, not great. Really not great, man. <laughs> it's an interesting day. <laughs> there are some challenges that I'm, that I'm, you know, dealing with or whatever I'm doing. <clears throat> Even dealing is a word that has connotations, but I would rather say I'm not great rather than saying I'm really bad. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting area to look in. That whole area of authenticity might be looping down another path today. Let's earmark yeah. that for simple consideration because my mind yeah. goes down that path and I'm automatically from whatever condition belief inclined to start saying what is really authentic. And that's a whole nother question. Let's veer back, if we might, toward those repetitive thought cycles. Yeah. As we start to move into some of those trauma pattern things where we simply adopt that belief from our environment and from others. Now, that can often become a very challenging cycle for each of us. Mm. What role do you feel emotion itself plays in triggering that response? Well, even one step back from that, I think that the 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 veracity or the the, the degree of the emotion that was invoked in the moment of the trauma, so to speak. Yeah. So the scope of the emotion in the moment can have something to do with the level of trauma and how long that hangs around as a neurological glitch in the matrix, so to speak. <laughs> you know, <laughs> So the initial emotional response of the event, you know, so for example, there was an event for me when I was six years old um, and my father who, um, bless his cotton socks, lovely man as well, but also, you know, a, a troubled soul also. And, uh, and we had full reconciliation before he died. I, I love the man. When I was six years old, he lost his temper and he beat me up and he threw me around my bedroom and scared the absolute living daylights out of me, shall we say, right? Mm -hmm. um, in that moment, the emotion of fear and also the emotion of complete, um, it was primarily fear, but it was also of letting down my dad, you know, that I wasn't good enough for, for the man on the pedestal, for him to, to, to be so angry and to hurt me like that. I, yeah. I was just destroyed emotionally. It was very big for me. So that became a, an event, a traumatic event that became lodged in my neurology, my neural wiring, right? The pathways mm -hmm. that then became triggered throughout my life until I did the years of healing of that for myself. And so because the emotional experience was so great at the time, the lodgement of the trauma was so great and got triggered throughout my adult life, you know? And then when I was triggered by it, I would go back into boy and all, all the other stuff that would come from it. So I think emotion certainly is a big factor in this for sure. 
and our sense of identity, because our sense of identity is an illusion, it's trying to grab onto something visceral, something tangible. And so stuff that really hurts is tangible. It's a physical feeling. We can actually, it's visceral, right? So our sense of identity goes, oh, that's me. I suffer depression or I, I am this anxiety or I am this fear or I am this anger. So yeah, man, in answer to your question, I think emotion's a big part of it. We look at that from the notion of somatic experience or simply what is embodied or within its totality throughout our entire experience and being. You know, we have mm. systems, we have various processes, a lot of stuff. Let's just simplify it today. A lot of stuff makes us work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 we try to pick that apart, pull it apart again, moving into that notion of separation. Let me get in here and pick this apart becomes our thought pattern to find out why. Mm, mm, mm. And it seems like, you know, that's part of our natural, our natural curiosity is to understand self, to understand self within the, the experience of life. You know, we're, we're conscious creatures. Yeah. We have this incessant drive to, uh, to know why. Why am I conscious? Why does consciousness even exist? What part does consciousness play? Is consciousness an emergent property of, of the physical world or does consciousness exist before the physical world? We yeah. still don't know the answers to those questions and I don't think we ever potentially ever can. <laughs> we probably get in our own way. You know, keeping us forever arriving there most of the time. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) I'm going to chuckle that one off because it can be somewhat ironic. We simply put one foot in front of the other and trip ourselves. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah. As we're looking at that, we can share a fairly common knowledge that rumination or simply reactivating those emotional triggers often comes into play in this repetitive thought and emotional feedback loop. Yeah. Very frequently, you describe it as becoming somewhat of a torturous cycle of rumination. How might our cognitive biases play a role in creating what we deem black and white thinking, which simply needs to see things as positive and negative or good and bad? You know, there again, we're picking things apart. Yeah, I think we're picking things apart and we're trying to simplify a very complex experience of existence. You know, we're, we're trying to simplify it so that we can comprehend it so that we can move through it and survive. This duality that we've created, it's an apparent duality. Apparently there's black and white. Apparently there's day and night. Apparently there's yin and yang and masculine and feminine and north and south poles. Apparently there's this duality when in actual fact, everything is part of the one unified field, right? But as humans, we compartmentalize into this illusion of duality so that we can try and comprehend what the hell's going on, right? Because it it is very, very beautifully complex. But in order for us to get up in the morning and have a shower and put our clothes on and feed the kids and get them off to school and go to work and earn a buck and come home and pay the rent to survive, we need to try and break stuff down and simplify it so we can comprehend it. Um, I, I think it's a survival mechanism. Throughout our cultural lexicon of beliefs, there is a foundational mantra which often rings true. To live is to suffer. And to survive is finding meaning within that suffering. On a day-to-day basis, the hurdles we each perceive often becoming the more redundant cycles of life. And at times, the patterns we engage simply starting to feel like a never-ending fight. 
Today we cry out, nevermore. When we return, we learn how to make a new beginning as we see things with brand new eyes. I want to share a little secret with you today about a podcast booking and matching platform I truly love. As a podcast host and guest, my go-to podcast booking app is podmatch.com. If you currently have a podcast, regularly guest on podcast, or if you are new to the podcasting game looking to start your show, podmatch.com is an industry leader. They quickly and effortlessly connect ideal podcast guests and hosts. Their process is super easy and highly effective. Create your free guest or host account and set up your profile. It's really that easy. And the Podmatch AI will work its magic in the background, delivering your ideal interview matches within minutes, tailored uniquely for you. As a host and executive producer of the Top 100 Self-Improvement Podcast, The Light Inside, I found more high-quality guests on Podmatch than anywhere else and in a fraction of the time. So if you're looking to expedite your podcast booking experience, fill in your calendar with high-engagement content, creating value and meaning for your listening community. Check out podmatch.com, that's P-O-D-match.com today and discover your ideal match magic. As ironic as it sounds, individuals engaged in cycles of traumatic response will often return to their familiar emotionally reactive states as they seek the seemingly endless state of familiarity. Once a self-imposed belief gets embedded in the unconscious, the cycle becomes a redundant pattern of emotional rumination, or perceived slights playing out over and over again as one seeks to relive the past. Bringing these unconscious beliefs into our awareness is most often accessed via a few simple questions essential to one's core values. Your somatic system's infinitely tied to your ability to intuitively respond via our brain's hippocampus through the polyvagal nerve in the central nervous system with even our gut playing an essential role. We are one embodied system, each process requiring the other to work as a team in order to reach our essential effectiveness. These systems form the very ecosphere of our being. Jim, I think that kind of leads us into how those survival modes then start to play out throughout that emotional interaction. Interaction mm. to me being a keyword because so often we're gearing our emotional responsiveness or emotional ability toward reactivity where we're simply leaning back into that old pattern again and reacting that role. Yeah. Yeah. Look, did our, our belief patterns, this looping that you, that you keep talking about, which is going on is persistent, man. 
it's persistent, you know. When I had, I had my, I call it my midlife opportunity, midlife awakening. Other people call it a midlife crisis. And, um, you know, I lost my career, lost my marriage, lost my house, lost everything except my two kids, thankfully. But I I got the opportunity to rewire a lot of stuff. Um, And you can't just click your fingers. (laughs) It's not just like, aha, now I'm, now I'm wired differently. No, no, no. It takes work, dude, because the neurology, the, the existing thought patterns, beliefs, and biases that have been ingrained through your whole life are wired together reasonably persistently, you know? So if you want to change that from from my experience, anyway, this was just my experience. I had to roll my sleeves up and I had to go to work, dude. And I mean, every single day rewiring to more functional beliefs around myself primarily, which then led to the way that I experienced being a part of the greater system. But yeah, you know, and you made me think of something else, dude, before when you said this, how we default back to this perspective of being separate from our environment. Like I'm separate, like I'm me and this is the world around me and I'm in the middle, I'm in the center of it and I'm moving through this world around me and we're separate. And that illusion is fundamental because how on earth can we be separate from everything, you know? Jim, in that regard, what role do you yourself feel the ego plays? Oh man, the ego has to understand itself in terms of being separate from its environment. You know, and I, I don't think the ego is necessarily a bad thing. It must be necessary. Yeah. We've all got one, right? <laughs> so it's it's not a good or a bad no, thing. No, we've told ourselves, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, the ego's bad. Get rid of the ego. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> no, no, no. The ego is obviously, we should have an ego. Why? Because we've got one. But it is an illusion. I don't know if you've got kids as well, man, but when when brand new little babies are born, you know, they don't come out of their mum going, yes, I know who I am and look out for me, world, here I come. <laughs> <You know? laughs> for a brand new baby, it's all just lights and sounds and sensations, you know, and they might have some some behavioural predisposition to certain traits, but they're not aware of self. And when they first come out, they, they still kind of exist like they're part of their mum, right? And then you watch yeah. this beautiful process happen of separation, individuation, and they start to form this sense of self, you know? And then they get to an age where you say, hey, mate, come here for dinner. And they go, no. <laughs> no, what do you mean no? Come here and have your dinner. No, they get defiant, <laughs> right? And they're starting to understand that they, they have this idea that they have some autonomy, you know, some agency and, and some say about their own life. And, and so then they start to go, wow, I'm me and you're you and we're separate. So this separation from the outside world starts to happen. Like I'm here, me experiencing the outside world. Now, look, this is necessary. We've got to do this so that we can survive. I get it. Uh, But the ego left unchecked drives the bus to its own end. And the ego, so our sense of identity, who we think we are, in its desperate plight to maintain its, its integrity, will defend itself to your own demise. If you've identified as someone who is, um, I'm a depression sufferer, if that's part of your identity, your ego will defend that and try to maintain that suffering. If you've identified someone as someone who's an angry, I'm an angry man, that is who I am. Your ego will defend that and hold on to that and keep you angry for as long as it can. It doesn't (laughs) actually care about your happiness. It just cares about maintaining that sense of identity. So it can be really, it can get in the way, man, for sure. Ego. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to step that back just a second here, relating to my own personal experience. Have three fully grown children, adulthood, 
we just now moved into another cycle of being grandparents. Wow. To me, this is a very fascinating opportunity. Now, I'm not the one holding the reins, so to speak, and are those reins, but, you know, interacting with that process there again, that's a conditioned belief that just came out of my unconscious into the present. Holding the rain, somehow there's a belief attached to that. (laughs) But I'm now not in that position where I'm the parental figure and I can step back and say, let me watch what's happening with this child. It's fascinating to see that return to square one, so to speak, as a new cycle. Yeah, yeah. Now, hang on one second, Jeffrey. Before we go any further into this part of the conversation, dude, I've got to ask you, what is your secret sauce, Jeffrey? Because you do not look old (laughs) enough to be a grandfather, man. What the hell is going on? Positive thinking, I guess. I'm not necessarily positive thinking, you know, good value system and trying to practice, you know, maintaining somewhat of a healthy lifestyle. Yeah. Exercise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All the things we call the good stuff in life, you know. I got to put my glasses on. Hang on. I put my glasses on. (laughs) We're not going to get in regiment because then if it becomes regiment, that becomes counterproductive sometimes. So, yeah. Yeah, Just awesome. following some of those practices that enrich and encourage us toward our essential elements. So <laughs> mm. you're yeah, doing I'm, something right. You're doing something right. years of age, I'm graying and starting to see that hiding it with the ball, you know, not necessarily if it's hiding it. I'll admit back in my twenties, there was an element of hiding it. Now yeah, I kind yeah. of when just did you rather turn 51, like, dude? We're both, uh, we're back both in December, back in December of, of uh-huh. you're six, you're six months older year. than me, brother. Yeah. 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 I just turned 51 in June. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're looking great yourself, my friend. (laughs) Did you say gray? I'm looking gray or gray? Great, great, great. (laughs) Holding up well, you know, soldiering on. (laughs) I love life, man. I love it all. You know, not all of it, but I do generally love it, you know. Um, Yeah, fascinating. But, you know, the other thing too, man, when you were just saying, when you said holding the reins, right? Yeah. Which is a figure of speech. And you said how that came out from your subconscious, which it did. Uh, Also, we have these... Uh, colloquialisms, these sayings, these terms thought in an effort. Terminating you know, cliches. Right. Thought terminating yeah. cliches that we <laughs> use to communicate. Right? But you're trying to communicate something with me, which is yeah. interesting. Yeah. Uh, and I got what you meant. I understood what you yeah. meant. And I was like, wow, to be a grandparent. Yeah. So you're watching these, these babies and, you know, form and grow and they're related to you, like direct lineage, but you're kind of going, hey, righty-ho. <laughs> now I'm going to also observe the, the the humans, the people that mm-hmm. came from me and my, my wife and watch them have a crack at this as well, you know, like, wow, it must <laughs> be fascinating, you know. Oh, it's really interesting because, you know, <clears throat> we are a multi-unit family, I'll put it in that terms, where, you know, yeah. Yeah. we've all kind of divided and split, so to speak, in some way. Yeah. Yeah. That in itself can be treated with just simply an observant mind. You know, do we form a belief about that or do we just simply accept it and allow it to flow in a manner? Yeah. 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 Look, I've found um, it really beneficial. The practice, the ongoing practice over quite a long time now of mindfulness meditation, which is the, the practice of simply observing anything that shows up in conscious awareness. So simply observing it. And really the practice is to, to drop any story around it, any words, any association, any meaning. Now, easier said than done, I know, because the brain is busy, right? So we're, the brain's constantly going, but we can even 
observe our thoughts without being identified with them or attached with them or carried away by them. Um, so, and I find it really fascinating and, and not only fascinating to sit in practice of mindfulness meditation, but then, and arguably more importantly than just sitting there for 20 minutes meditating, the, the integration of that into day-to-day life. So in an experience, to be able to observe the experience without judgment, as, and again, it's easier said than done. Yeah. But, but, the, but the practice of it is wonderful, man. It's wonderful because <laughs> you're not so consumed and taken away by the, by the emotional or the neurological, the psychological experience of a moment being identified with it when you can step outside of it, so to speak, or in deeper inside of it and simply observe it. I, I love it, man. It's been great. Yeah, I'm inclined to step back then and consider that role of the ego. Isn't it sometimes stigmatized for doing its essential function as it carries out the role it was designed to play simply to say, man, I'm here to keep you aware of moving forward. I'm here to keep you aware of moving forward. That's the job I'm here to do. I can only do it as well as I'm trained to do the job. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we can actually consciously re-brainwash or continue to brainwash ourselves. <laughs> brainwash. Sometimes it needs a good scrubbing, you know. We can consciously. We flip that around. Are we washing yeah, it up so it's nice and, you know, where we want it to be? Yeah. Yeah. Or do we yeah. look at that know. brainwashing as somehow, you know, I'm only looking at the stigma and judgment of it. Somehow it's dirty and needs fixed up. Yeah. It's all perspective. It, it, it's all perspective, man. You know, and look, you know, you, it can be both. It can be both, you know, and you, and, and it can be all of the above. You know, what I'm talking about in terms of consciously yes. brainwashing or rewiring um, a sense of identity. So let's bring it back to ego. Yes. Let's look at that. And, and rather than identifying with the vehicles, the things that we use to get around life, the, the temporary things like relationships, <clears throat> you know, every relationship you have is going to end on the physical level. Everyone we know is going to die either before us or after us, right? That's not a sad thing. That's just life. And so if I identify as her husband or if I identify as his father or her father, or if I identify as her son, or if I identify in that relationship, the identity will be rocked when that relationship isn't there anymore. Or if I identify as a coach and then one day I'm not coaching, then who am I? Mm -hmm. If I identify as a surfer because I surf and then one day I can't surf anymore because my knees aren't working well enough, then who am I, right? So rather than identifying with the vehicles, I've started to identify with the values that sit, my ideal values of the of ideally who I try or aim or or, or 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 hope to be in each moment, my character in each moment, who do I choose to be? So part of my affirmations in the morning after I meditate every morning is to say, I am a kind, caring, generous, open-minded, action-taking man. I say it every single day. Why do I say it every single day? Because every time I say it, the corresponding neurons have to fire in my brain. And every time they fire, they wire together and they're wiring together. That's why I can say it as a reflex now. So my sense of identity is that I'm a kind, caring, generous, open-minded, loving, action-taking man, right? So that's my becoming my, my, like you're saying, my default looping wiring. Now, I created that wiring. That wasn't accidental. That wasn't whoops-a-daisy. As I'm growing up, things happen to me and now I'm kind of <laughs> here. Right? That was on purpose. It was with volition. 
and and repetitive work every single day. So um, I, I think it's empowering to to some degree to have something to say about this looping wiring, you know, and then to and then to experience the benefit of that. In that regard, I'm going to approach this from two angles, if I might, Jim. First mm-hmm. and foremost, that repetitiveness is just simply that repetitive learning, much like when we engage, say, multiplication tables. You know, you're learning mathematics is simply a pattern and formula to find an effective end outcome. Yeah. When we look at that as our kind of map to get somewhere, as we're traveling somewhere as a destination, not that we necessarily form our view of life as a destination, it's simply a guiding course. It's simply a suggestion of Mm. a possible outcome. Mm. Worked with an individual this week, and that kind of came to the forefront to me as a very valuable tool to simply look and observe. Those core values are simply a suggestion. Yeah. There's simply a map and a guidepost that says there's a sign you might go this way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And they're not, they're not an ultimate truth either. You know, there's no, and there's no yeah. values police. I love that. You are free to have whatever core values you want and then experience <laughs> your life in accordance to those living those core values. Like you said, they're the guideposts, right? And the map is not the reality. It's just the map. So your understanding of, of reality and your values sit within that. That's just a map, like you said, yeah. guideposts. You know, you might want to go this way and you go this way and then you see what happens when you walk down that road to Kansas or to Timbuktu, you know, and you see what happens and you go, oh, wow, this is happening because I chose to follow those guideposts, you know. But, yeah, look, I, I, I'm finding it a, a, a much, um, it, it's, a, it's, it's a much, for me, it's a much more functional sense of identity, sense of ego, my ego identifies as this, as because I identify as being kind, I show up each day and I'm pretty kind. I'm kind to people. I'm never cruel to anyone, not even to myself anymore. And I used to be cruel to myself. You know, the, the internal talk used to be horrible. See yourself in the mirror and, and the, the words, that, the, the cussing and the, and the, you know, the self-deprecation that would go on internally. And I've made a conscious effort for that not to happen anymore. You know, I found another some other wiring that I've created that's now become looping. It just loops on its own. Yeah. Gratitude. <laughs> gratitude, right? Because I, I read the books and I heard yeah. the stuff and I went, oh, gratitude, that's a good thing to do, right? So I created these conscious practices, daily practices of gratitude. And because I've been doing it now for so many years, man, I'm tripping over gratitude everywhere I go to. I walk out the door and I'm like, oh, I'm so grateful for where I live. And I get in my car, I'm like, oh, I'm so grateful I've got a car, you know? And then I see my children, I'm like, oh, I'm so grateful I've got those teenagers. You know? And my family <laughs> kind of laugh at me and they're going, oh, my God, Jim, you're always going on about how great you are. And I'm like, yes, I know. And it makes me feel good. <laughs> it's that dopamine hit very, yeah, very right. literally yeah. releasing those feel good chemicals in your body. You know, your body is programmed to yeah. do that, you know, and it's a looping thing now, man. It's, it's, it's happening of its own accord, right? <laughs> you know, I look at that then, and I'm looking back toward an episode some time ago of ours with Dr. Benjamin Hardy who released a great book in my mind called Personality Isn't Permanent. Looking at that aspect of how we often cement our feet in that notion of personality to the point where we become rooted, that this is who we are at our core and it's unmovable. Yeah. What a crazy idea. 
you know, and I love this guy for the simple fact alone. And I say love because I am truly grateful because every interaction I see from this individual stimulates me to question, which in and of itself brings you right in line with that ego that says, what might get in the way of simply questioning? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it fascinating, man, that we have this experience of being a consistent soul or entity or person, personality throughout our life. Like it was me that was always there in every experience I've ever had. I was there and I will be here all through my life. We have, we have this idea, this experience, it feels very visceral, very real. Um, you know, but every physical cell in our body is recycled and changed over up to seven times in a normal lifetime. <laughs> so we are very literally seven times over, not one single part physically the same blob of flesh and bones that we were when we were born. So if our whole physical system has changed seven times over, what is this consistent thing? What is this sense of me being a soul inside this body behind my eyes driving this thing, you know, what is that? That's, that's kind of crazy. Every instant to me is simply an opportunity to engage that infinite potential Uh huh. to simply say, what if, uh, huh. Yeah. Reeling this back a little bit, going back to my brand new granddaughter, Ember, yeah. you look at the fact that we're born somewhat as an emotionally blank slate by most beliefs. You know, the current belief by one camp is that we're ruled by emotions and there's, you know, other factions or other areas of scientific study that says, you know, we're that somatic whole bodied approach where all those systems are working together. Moving that back though, just looking that by the age of 18 months, we start to learn many of those patterns. We're starting to mirror, reflect, and kind of simulate to some degree the environment that we've simply seen, that we've simply been a part of and felt with our senses and experienced. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in utero, through those nine months, give or take, of, of, of formation inside mum's tummy, how on earth could you not be affected by the mother's emotional, physiological, psychological experience of her life through that time as well? How could you not be? I mean, you are becoming of, you are forming inside this human as, as a result of um, her body feeding you and nourishing you and carrying you. And, and so it would only make sense to me that that must have some kind of influence to the predispositions that you, you know, then experience in those 18 months. And then, like you said earlier at the start of the conversation, especially in those first seven years, that must be the launch pad, right? We start to see and observe again, what but a repetitive cycle in a feedback loop of what can I make of this? Mm. We start forming that just simply from the pattern recognition, somewhat as a novice, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we yeah. learn those. So can we not also reset ourselves at any given point and say, let's just simply go back to zero and see what might happen? Yeah. That Easier can be a scary place. Too. It can be a scary place because we're told yeah. so often it's a scary place. If we look throughout our culture and society. Mm. Mm. How many times do we reinforce beliefs of that nature that might stick and become a stuck point? Yeah, might yeah. act as that concrete where we hold on to and say, but 
I'm sitting right here simply because somebody said, if I move from here, there's peril out there and that peril is certain. Yeah. Yeah. And also that if I, um, if I don't keep it together, so to speak, then I have a breakdown. And if you have a breakdown, that's a bad thing, you know, and, you know, I've had two identity crises in my life. One when I was in my late twenties and one in my early forties, the one in my late twenties was scary, man. It was scary because I, I lost my sense of self and I didn't know who I was. And I, and I, there was a lot of self-loathing and I got to a point in my life where I was living in a foreign city on the other side of the world and I wasn't her fiance anymore and I wasn't the actor, singer, songwriter that I'd identified with and I wasn't the family member that I was because I'd left my family and I didn't know who I was, man. It was, it was a really tough time, you know, and there was drug abuse going on and there was, um, I was lost and I even developed a stutter. You know, I was so unsure of myself. I, I developed a full stutter when I was trying to talk. And this, this, this death of ego, this, this loss of identity, I'd been told this is a breakdown and you'll end up in a loony bin and you'll end up, you know, you'll never come back. And, and I, I, that's what we tell ourselves or society tells us, right? Yeah. And the ego itself has this fueled by fear um, position of going, no, no. <laughs> and <laughs> what ensued after that was the most magical year or two of wandering around India barefoot with dreadlocks and on this <laughs> journey to re-identify man. And it was a stunningly beautiful period of time in my life. And I realized, wow, I get to re-identify. I get to choose who I want to be. You know, I, I almost went back to ground zero, almost. You know, and that, and it was, it was actually a beautiful opportunity, not a crisis. That's such a ironic point to find ourselves in. You know, we seek that source of familiarity mm. out of that dual role of security, insecurity, mm. Mm. seeking that core sense of just simply feeling safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To me, that then becomes quite a uh, paradox, paradox to phrase it, mm. when we consider how within our traumatic response, mm. we often return to that familiar emotional reactivity or emotional reactive states because it simply feels familiar. Yeah. We know yeah. it. So we feel we have some sense of certainty about it. We can start yeah. to predict. As we predict, we start to go back into that emotional loop again. Yeah, yeah. I know this. I, I know, know this. This is familiar. So yeah. then we call that our comfort zone, even though our comfort zone might be really uncomfortable, but we yeah. know it, right? Well, we so start to might, form that duality there. Can we just simply yeah. say, I'm familiar and be comfortable with that? Mm. <laughs> you know, so yeah. we look at that and it's, again, going back to that kind of black and white thinking. Mm. Becoming very subjective about it, subjective to the fact that now this might have a positive or negative outcome. We're starting to project our state on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we do that, right? So our our association and our and our um you know our being rooted in our past, yeah. our association to the past, we very much that plays out into our present and then our projection into the future, right? This is our karma. This is us creating our own karma. If you haven't forgiven yourself, so to speak, in inverted commas, whatever forgiven yourself means for you, 
If you haven't forgiven yourself for your experience or the way you showed up in the past, you will live that out into the future. And here's your self-fulfilling prophecy, right? This looping thing that you're talking about. So um, the ability to free ourselves from association to things um, means that we're opening ourselves to infinite possibility and potential in the future. But if you're still trapped in, in the past, then you've got a very limited scope of what's possible in the future for you. Going back then and checking myself so I'm not stepping to my own circular thinking, that leads me back to a couple of thoughts again. You know, I like to do thoughts. What angle can we look at this? From one angle, we go back to that idea of thought terminating cliche. Is it the thought that you're terminating or is it the cliche? You know, the cliche, what role is it playing? Sometimes the cliche is just simply the pattern and it's the thought we need to consider. We're going to look at that and say, look at that cliched pattern of do unto others from a very, you know, hopefully neutral and objective point to simply say, if you can't forgive yourself, how can you be forgiving towards others? Mm -hmm. What loops might start to form out of that process? Because you are holding resentments. Most of the time, it's because you're resenting something from within yourself. You're unable to forgive yourself, so you can't forgive others. Completely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And insert whichever word you want there instead of forgive. It could be love. If you're unable to love yourself, then you're unable to love others. If you're unable to (laughs) accept yourself, you are unable to accept others because your version of anybody else you know, my version of you, Jeffrey, we've just met and we've connected and clicked and, uh, and I've, got a, I've got a perception of you. My perception of you is very much flavoured by my association to this moment, which is determined by my association yeah. from the past, right? So if we've got 10 people who know you, to stand them in a room and everyone and say, okay, everyone, um, describe Jeffrey. You're going to get 10 slightly different versions of Jeffrey, right? Because it's their own version of you, right? So I can only experience you through being me. Mm -hmm. And if I have got hangups or um, trauma or uh, associations to experiences from the past, which of course we do, uh, that flavors my version of you. So if I'm triggered by you, I'm actually triggered by my perception of you, not not actually by you. You If I want to break that down to some scientific knowledge I've experienced from my perspective there again, mm. this notion of chordal columns, which is simply a function of the brain, which I'm going to break it down to somewhat layman's terms. As we walk into an environment, experience a stimulus, it's like a snapshot of what we see and experience. Mm. And the more repetitively we do that, the more notions we start to build upon. Mm. We're starting to simply construct our Perception of belief. I'll put it in that reference. Perception of belief based on this memory book of snapshots we've taken. If you miss observing a certain angle, you simply can't put it in the book to recall. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It's a really probably elementary breakdown of that process. That's what's going on. What picture are you choosing to see? And, you know, where might you not have simply been open to awareness and observance? Mm, absolutely. You know, and then there's all the tiny um, subconscious associations that we're not even aware of. So, for example, right, just say you and I went to uh, a networking event, right? And we walk into the room and we don't know anyone, but we go into this room and we walk in and my feeling 
you know, my, my, my gut feeling might be like, oh, wow, Jeffrey, this feels great, man. This feels like a good group of people. And, uh, and, and, you know, I, I've got a good feeling about this evening, right? And you might have a very different feeling. You might say, oh, something doesn't feel quite right, man. I just, there's something that doesn't feel quite right. Now, your sense of something not feeling quite right might be because um, the woman who just walked past us behind us was wearing a perfume that a, an abusive auntie of yours was wearing when you were two years old and she was horrible to you. And you've got no idea that your auntie, when you were two, wore that perfume, but but your those cortal columns you were talking about, there's a snapshot in there that associates that perfume with someone who you can't trust, right? So now you've got a feeling in the room that you can't trust the room and you've got no idea why. <laughs> but it, but these these little associations actually happen, you know. So there's so much going on that is feeding our reality in a given moment and our idea of what's going on. It can be hunger, hunger. You know, we know from researching judges. If you get put before a judge and it's before the judge's lunch break and they haven't eaten and they're hungry, they give harsher sentences when they're hungry. <laughs> right? so there's so much going on that plays into our version of of sensibility. You know. So tying into that notion of the judge right here in the moment, this isn't to discount the fact that there are very present harms that we often experience. I'll say present that have potential repercussions, outcomes that are unfavorable, negative, that are truly hurtful Mm. in any regard. I'm not going to even tie it to any specific experience. How we judge that going forward makes all the difference. Are we discerning or judging? Are we Mm. accepting the present circumstances once we do return to some mode of safe interaction and being? Mm. Yeah, it's such a great question, you know, and I think that the more judgmental we are in a moment of the moment or the other person involved or, or self, then, you know, the more association we're, we're, we're attaching to, and whether it go, moves into the realm of being traumatic or not, but the more association we're attaching to that experience, which will then play into our future um, perception of reality. So I think it's really, it's a beautiful question and it's a beautiful opportunity to cultivate the ability to move towards discerning rather than judgmental in a moment. Curiosity, you know, not to take things so personally and just to, in a moment, rather than going, you know, that person who I thought I loved did that thing to me. How dare they do that to me? You know, I need to create stronger boundaries, we might say. Or in that moment to take a breath, stop taking it so personally, just go, wow, I'm really curious what's going on for that person right now that they are showing up in the way they're showing up and that this experience is, is it just is. I'm going to loosen my grip on on how I think things should be and and you shouldn't do that. I'm going to just loosen my grip on that a little bit. I'm just going to sit here and breathe and observe, you know, less judgment. And then I think theoretically, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking out loud right now, man. You've got me, you've got me thinking. And then theoretically moving forward, right, that there's less kind of gripping and attaching to this reality that you've formed and the way you think things should be, which is rigid. And when you're rigid, you're breakable, man. When you're, when you're flexible, adaptable, uh, you know, of mind and body and soul, then, then it's, you, you're kind of more durable like bamboo, you know? <laughs> yeah. But that is 
to me is very important, can be very important. So often we look at that simple statement. It is what it is. Simply opening to acceptance and possibility yet can be so triggering at times because that uncertainty moves people into that insecure state, starts to call into those patterns, starts Mm. to call all of those questioning external voices into play. So-and-so said it is not often being the guide rather Mm. than simply opening up and being vulnerable to it is what it is and what it may become ultimately being the outcome. Yeah. 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 Man, I don't know if your does your podcast go visual as well, or is it just auditory? We're auditory you, most of the time. Most of the time. <laughs> I was going to show you because but your, your listeners won't be able to see it. Yeah. But up here on my arm, that tattoo that you see up there. We'll put a snapshot this, up of that. This one here Nothing is, else. it's I, I, W, I, I, I tattooed that on myself. Ah. I tattooed by, by hand. I don't use a machine. Really? Yeah, I just just by hand. Interesting. But this is I I W I I. It is what it is. Is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> then it can potentially be anything. It That's might right. become from that perspective. It is what it is, man. And then I've had this. I've had this tattoo for years because I I, I love that. And then Donald Trump started saying it. He started saying it is what it is. And he was using it in a negative way, yeah. like a, a pass off thing. Like, yeah, I'm going to build the wall. It is what it is. And I'm like, no, stop using that term, man. You <laughs> They're ruining the term, dude. It still is what it is and only the core value of your underlying belief. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Guides that potential for motivational factor and influential action. Yeah motivational factor let's simplify this again you know mm, mm. without going into the, the total semantics of it is simply the why you're doing something thing yeah yeah influential yeah, your why behind it becomes anything that might interact with that your uh-huh. core values being the foundation that both of those are rooted on yeah your reasoning or purposeful intention for doing anything and everything that might be or become throughout life. Mm. That's the key. Yeah. That's <laughs> the value serves as the reason why you're getting in the car. Mm. The motivational factor is what's putting fuel in that tank and driving you forward. If we want to put it in that forward vernacular, yeah. creating the action is yeah. simply yeah. the source of the fuel that becomes the outcome that results yeah. response. And, and here, um, is an opportunity for emotions to play a function as well, because it is, if you, if there's no emotional engagement to your purpose or your reason why it just, it's just vanilla, it's pedestrian. It's yeah. like, uh, yeah, I can't, I'm going to work because I got to earn money because I got to pay the bills. Right. But if there's a strong passion or reason why, no, I'm on a mission to insert here, whatever your purpose is that, and you feel emotional about that then it's the emotion that creates the motion, right? That creates the, the motivation to move and take action and to um, look for ways to thrive through adversity, to get up on those days that are tough, you know, to, to create solutions to those bigger problems that present themselves in your life when you're emotionally engaged with a reason why, you know, and guided by your values. Yeah, man, I love that. That's cool. I've come to what I feel is a very valuable relationship in viewing those emotions, simply serving as a signal post. 
uh-huh. a light, you know, a guide, you know, back to the light inside. Mm. One easy way for me to look at that is the notion of a stoplight serves yeah. a multidimensional role. When we're trained what those lights believe, we follow that. At their core, they're simply a suggestion of what to do. Red light says stop. Why then becomes the question when you stop? What might be the outcome? If you feel you have to stop, yellow, sometimes you just have to slow down and become aware of what's going on. And we've entrained ourselves to believe that that green light is all systems go, you know, back to Matthew McConaughey, green light, green light, green light. Mm. Just simply paying attention to the signal and viewing it as a suggestion of a potential result and outcome. Yeah. Yeah. And your emotions can be that. Based on your core values, what might happen if I do? Is this a value that I feel enriches and evolves my life? Mm. Mm. Does it make me feel a good result at the end? Somewhat Mm. dissected from the process of feelings and emotions, being a little bit distinct, a little bit gray in how they interact. Mm. That's a whole nother conversation. (laughs) Yeah, 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 absolutely. It is. Yeah. And I like to throw into that mix. I like to throw into that mix your North Star, your your (laughs) higher purpose, you know, which, which I don't believe is necessarily this. It's just my belief, right? It's a belief. It's a, it's a, a, like a cliche, but I, I don't necessarily believe that your, your higher purpose, your reason for being here is ordained by some external force. I believe that you get to discover that, make that up, create that, find that for yourself. That's it's up to you if you want to. And you don't have to. You don't have to have a North Star. You don't have to have a higher purpose if you don't want to. I just find it really helpful. You know, for me to have a sense that there's a, a that there's a, a meaning beyond survival for me to be here, you know, that I can actually contribute to the greater good in some way, shape or form. That gives me a sense of purpose. It gives me a sense of direction. So then I've got my core values and my emotional response, my traffic lights to any given moment. And they're, they're guiding me in the direction in, in terms of um, what I choose to do or not do. And then if I've got this overarching kind of mission to my life, then I can run my decisions through that litmus test. Is this, if I choose to do this, is it going to help me on my mission? Or is it going to get in the way of my mission? And I use that to sometimes make those trickier decisions, you know, because opportunities come in front of us and we're like, wow, do I take this opportunity or not? What should I do? And then I'll, well, how do I feel about it? Emotions and values. And what do I feel would be the best thing for me to do in terms of me living with integrity and in authenticity, like you said before, because what is that? But my own <laughs> my own perception of authenticity, right? And, and is it helping me on my higher purpose? And if I believe it is, then green light, green light, green light, you know? There again, it's simply serving as that signpost that's a suggestion. Yeah. Light, you know, we can observe in a lot of different ways. Ultimately, it illuminates where we're going and mm. serves as some mode of direction at times. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Let's leave it yeah. out there for that, you know? Once yeah. we start to manipulate it, are we not starting to maybe form some kind of loop? <laughs> <laughs> when the ego gets in the way, it says, maybe not. You know, let's let the guy say, hey, let's. We also got to train you to sometimes get the outcome, you know, to have a different belief. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's kind of a hanging moment. Let's leave it hang out there today. Speaking of light, Jim, I want to thank you for shining your light so bright today. I truly wholeheartedly and wholebodedly, if that's a thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. grateful for that. Yeah. Thank you today for sharing your insights with us. Oh, Jeffrey, man, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's been really a pleasure to have a conversation with you. And, you know, I'm inspired by the light that is obviously shining, you know, as you engage in in what you care about. And and conversations like this, I think, are really important, man, so important. And and I feel honoured to have been invited onto your show uh, and into this conversation with you. So thank you. Thank you, my friend. Namaste. The light in me fully acknowledges the light in you. Yeah, namaste. I see you, brother. <laughs> there you have it. The ability to free ourselves from an association to things. Those things which become anything holding you back means that we're opening ourselves to infinite possibility and potential in the future. Yet if you're still trapped in the past, then we approach what's possible with a very limited scope of view. Seeing things each day with brand new eyes is essential in changing our view. Release the struggle of past comparisons. There are times when the things we neglect or avoid prevent our unconscious beliefs from empowering us. That is, once we turn them free to fly. If you love this episode, please share it with a loved one. We're grateful for you, our dedicated listening community. This has been The Light Inside. I'm Jeffrey B. Secker. <laughs>